to make it. Good morning. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. Our reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, reading chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Excuse me while I just take a deep breath. Okay. <laughs> Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I, my, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Bill. Morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Brendan. Pastor Brendan is homesick. He had a head cold last weekend and he started to recover from that and then it hit him again uh, Thursday night, no, not uh, Friday. So Friday afternoon, he uh, rang me and said that he would probably be okay for Sunday morning uh, and then he sort of texts back and said, oh, on second thought, because I've got this head cold and it seems to be getting worse, maybe I should just stay away and I said, it's okay, I'll do it. And I'm preaching tonight on Nehemiah 6, and that's what I was doing on Friday afternoon. And then uh, the pastoral team called an emergency meeting yesterday, and I was here for about three hours. Some were here for four, and a few of us were here for two hours yesterday, working out all this coronavirus and how we can respond appropriately to it. Um, and so time has gone. And so I was doing this message until about nine o'clock last night. All of this is an excuse. You will figure it out in a minute. <laughs> 
Normally, when I prepare a message, I take se over several days, and I take anything from 15 hours and sometimes a bit more, depending how interested I am in the stuff. Um, <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but normally, you get, I get my I look at the text carefully. I, I outline things. That's what I. That's how the, what the passage is saying. Now, how do I present this in a way which is relevant? And when you get, when I had like only whatever it is, six, eight hours or something to do this one, then I don't have time to prune it. So I keep throwing things into it and outlining it, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then normally on a weekend, I would go through and say, delete that, don't say that, say this, that's not relevant, you know, and you prune it down. And it becomes those magnificent messages that you're so used to. <laughs> <coughs> so when... <laughs> Like all passages of scripture, uh, it's deep. And you can go into one verse and stay there for quite a while. Well, and there's some miscommunication between uh, Brendan, me, and Mel. Mel read verses 1 to 14. I, I thought I was doing verses 1 to 11, but that's what I'm doing. I'm stopping at verse 11. We'll do uh, 12 there at the end of the chapter next week, God willing. Just a quick word about uh, the coronavirus, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. We are not trying to panic, but we are trying to be responsible and to alert our church community. The meeting yesterday revealed to us um, that we need to take precautionary measures. Some churches are shutting down, and the PT yesterday prayerfully, and we considered it as, well, what's the guideline? We just can't go by what we think. It's, what's the government saying to us? Let's follow their guidelines. And they said the guideline at the moment is... Um, 500 is the limit. If you have over 500 people, then don't gather together. That's our surmise. So we don't hit that criteria. We're not 500 people in one building, in one facility at one time. We are close to 500 when you add the Mandarin, the Cantonese, the Chengdu service and the kids. We'll probably certainly hit that figure. But we're not all here at the same time. Okay? So that's how we reasoned it through. And then we said, okay, what happens if the government then issues shut all public meetings down um, what do we do so we spoke about that and we came up that's why we need your information and would like us to stay in touch with you what we'll do is that if public gatherings are shut down then the worship teams will still gather some point during the week maybe even on Sundays don't know we've got a camera we will record the service I think we're recording today's service next week and uh, and then that'll go online so that you can still watch our services, the whole worship service, the singing. There'll be an offering bag, thanks to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'd encourage you to, uh, particularly to be giving electronically. And interestingly, our administrator, Pete, who's uh, home now, which is wonderful, um, and recovering. Pete, uh, several weeks ago, came across an app, uh, quite a while ago, and he's been trialling. He got the staff to trial it, and it's a, 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 you're using your mobile phone and you can essentially give electronically through that. So I'm not ready to release it yet. Pete will be the one who makes that decision, and so that may very well come online too in the next few weeks. It may very well uh, be made available to the church for us to use. You can use it now, of course, if you've got the app. Oh, is it? Has he done that? Did he tell you to? Oh, good. 
Nothing like being on, on ball and right in touch, is it? <laughs> Thanks, okay. Well, that's there. Generous is the name of it. And it's under the link, give. Who's been on our website? All six of you. Okay, thanks, Josh. That's helpful. Pastoral team made the decision. We prayed about it. We discussed backwards and forwards. We consulted some uh, pretty smart people and some of those medical and some just strategic thinkers, high, highly intelligent, and some outside our church. We asked for some advice, and we landed on saying, once the government releases the information, that's one of the issues, but once the government releases information that there has been a community contact, where, meaning where a person hasn't been overseas, they haven't bumped into somebody with a coronavirus, but somehow they've got the coronavirus. In other words, they've picked it up somewhere in the community by a railing, by something. Once you get that community transfer, then the thing will just go kafush. And so once the government says we have one case like that in Brisbane, then our instructions is we'll close down our public meetings because we don't want to provide an environment where we'll be spreading it. We think that's a reasonable and a fair response and it's also governed by an outside authority, somebody else giving us the instruction that there has been community transfer. Just between you and me and the internet, there probably already has been, but we're not told. So we're waiting to be told once we are told, then we all respond to it, okay? So that's our guideline. I hope that's helpful for you. We're not trying to be scaremongers. We're trying to be sensible.
holding forth the word of life. And I said, pick one of those to try to work on. And so we come to today's passage. The Apostle Paul moves on to talk about trading my rags for his robes. How does a person become acceptable to God? And like many messages, this one will be both perhaps a reminder to some of you of things that you know already, but you're being reminded of it, you may have forgotten it, or it may come back in a sharp focus for you. For some of you, it might be new information. You're just starting out on the journey and you've still got lots of questions and you're not sure where you're at spiritually. And for some of you, it's simply going to be um, not new information, not simply a reminder, but there could be a challenge for you, uh, either through being reminded or new information of being challenged about some aspect of this. Surveys, these, these now are a little bit dated, they're about 20 years old, so the figures might be out a bit. Survey, question. <clears throat> the way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life, to be nice to people. 60% agree. The way to be acceptable by God, to be accepted by God, Try to sincerely live a good life. Be a good person. God loves me. 60% said that 20 years ago. Um, next one. How can I be... Uh, God is satisfied if a person lives the best life that they can. Similar, but slightly different. If I do my best, 70% agreed with that. So the question becomes, how can we be right with God? Crocodile Dundee made the famous comment, didn't he, that God and me, we'd be mates. People say, sincerity is the key. But if you stop and think about that, if you swallow deadly poison and you sincerely think it's medicine, will you get better? No. It'll kill you. So sincerity needs to be aligned with truth. It needs to be aligned with facts. It's not enough to be sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. Or what about the people who say, if I try my best, I'm not perfect, nobody is, but if I try my best, then God will let me into heaven because I simply tried so hard. Yeah, well, if you think like that, then you tried long jumping across the Grand Canyon. You're not going to make it, are you? We can't do it in our own strength. The fact is, we are not good enough. We don't measure up. There was a general Pershing, end of World War I. The Allies had won, and they were going to have a celebration, a, a victory march in the streets of Paris. And the instructions came that you had to be 186 centimetres tall and some of the American units that were there, being Americans, they didn't know what 186 centimetres, how tall that was. And so they lined them up against the wall, and they said, first one up, first one up, that's one person up, and that's people on that one, that's people on that one. People who are on the top and the middle are coming up. Somebody from the middle is coming first and second, and the people lining on this wall are coming down to the corner. And they said,
Paul says, beware of them. Beware of the evil workers. Um, of people who do evil things, is what he means. Those people who are lined up with the evil one, subtly working to undermine the work of the gospel. They might be very well nice people, like Jehovah's Witnesses are nice people, aren't they? Had them knock on your door? Or Mormons? I haven't met a nasty one yet. And I've met lots of them. They're nice people. But they're wrong. And they're harmful in what they teach. They're deluded. And they are therefore workers of evil. Bad things. And then watch out for those mutilators of the first, the false circumcisers, those who come around and... In Galatians chapter 1, Paul even gets even more stronger in his language. He is so pointed with these false professing Christians walking around saying you've got to be circumcised. He says, I wish they'd go all the way and I wish they'd cut the whole thing off. Then he goes on to talk about, by contrast, we're the true church. We're the ones who have got the circumcision not being the physical, it's about the heart being circumcised, it's being set apart for God, it's being cleansed and devoted to Him. That's what it's supposed to demonstrate. That's the sign of the commitment. And that's what keeps people being true and true circumcision, the physical act of circumcision was for the Jewish people and it's a sign for them in their covenant, not for us or for any follower of Jesus. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who serve by His Spirit. It's not an outward legalistic thing, it's an inner spiritual sincere worship and serving of God and we are the ones likewise who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We rely on Jesus alone. It's no confidence in anything that we can do. It's not our human credentials, not our human words, not our ner- nothing. It's not our church attendance, it's not our spiritual, none of that makes us acceptable to God. It's Jesus. It's Him and Him alone is Paul's point. And then he wants to go on and say, sorry, back to verse 1, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again, it's not tongue talk, tack talk this morning and when he says rejoice in the Lord he means continue to maintain your focus that you are saved in Jesus Christ rejoice in him over nothing else that's the point he goes on to say if on the other hand some of you think that you have reason to be acceptable to God because of your religious credentials well I have far more better credentials than what you have and he lists them he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born as part of God's chosen people and my parents were obedient to that Jewish command. I am of the people of Israel. Um, I'm part of the in crowd. I am in. I am of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the favourite tribe. In fact, Benjamin is the only tribe that was born. Benjamin is the only son who was born in the land of promise. All the other sons of Jacob are born outside the land of promise. The first king came from Benjamin. What was his name? Saul. What's Paul's real name? Saul. Probably named after the first king. And so there's a Benjamin of north of Judah and the ten northern tribes went and guess what the city of Paul's called?
state in this new nation. The true tribe. The Hebrew of the Hebrews. Gee whiz, if you guys get fired up about that, imagine what it was like back then. A Hebrew of the Hebrews means that Faultless. No violations of the law as he understood it. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus one day and said, what have I got to do to be saved, to have eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I have kept those all my life. Same attitude. No violations of God's law. Trouble is they didn't understand God's law. Remember when Jesus came and said, well, I haven't murdered anybody. You haven't even been angry in your heart. That's breaking the law. I haven't committed adultery. You ever lusted after a woman in your heart? The law has not just the external physical dimensions to it, it has this inner spiritual motivational thing to it. And Paul is saying, I nailed it. I used to think I nailed it. As he ran the finger down the list of the things that he thought would make him acceptable to God, he suddenly came to the realisation that he fell short, that he was wrong. And so he came to realise and understand that all of those religious benefits that he once boasted in, that he once recited proudly. Remember the, the Pharisee went up to the temple and prayed? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I give a tenth of all that I do and I do this. And I, remember that? They would pray by boasting, reciting their religiosity before God. And Paul was saying he was one of those. But now, he said, I have come to the realisation because Jesus knocked him off his horse, quite literally. It wasn't that one-time event, but that was the last event of a series of events in his life where Jesus got his attention. And the Apostle Paul went, oh my goodness, I've got it totally wrong. All of the stuff that I thought was actually benefiting to me is actually a hindrance. It's now in the road of the spiritual reality. And now I consider it as loss. He goes on to use a very strong word. At the end of that, he uses it, garbage. And commentators and translators were not real sure how to translate it. Some of your Bibles might very well say it's like dung. It's like the stuff that's left over in the toilet bowl when you've been to the bathroom. 
It's that word. Or it's the word that you have, like last night we had chicken and roast vegetables that my wife cooked. Thank you, sweetheart. <clears throat> and it was very nice, gravy. And at the end of it, <clears throat> I took the plates out. It's okay, what a good boy am I. And I noticed on Rhonda's plate, there were little bits of skin and bone there. They're scraps. Sometimes when I take my wife's dinner out, she will have left roast potatoes or pumpkin or something else, which before I put it in the bin, I'd like to eat those. <laughs> well, I was raised that you don't leave anything on your plate. Weren't you raised that way? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't do that every time because there are some things that she puts in her mouth and she spits out again. And... <laughs> it's not that I reject it totally. I, I wrestle with, will I, won't I? <laughs> well, Paul says, that's what it's like. It's useless. It's worthless. It's, it's, it's all of that. It's dung. It's garbage. It's being a Pharisee, being zealous, being righteous, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being devoted and obedient, he said, doesn't cut it. We fall short. We can't make the standard. And he says, right in the middle of that, particularly when you compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, knowing him and what he did for us and does for us makes all of that irrelevant when you know him and the value of knowing him and that's Paul's drive and his ambition he goes on to say three things in verses 9 10 and 11 I want to know him I want to be found in him I want to know him and I want to become like him know him grow in him become like him it's all about him and that journey continues for us. I want to be found in him, to be in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Jesus. Like I've said to you over the last couple of weeks, and I've said it to you before, how are you going to get to heaven? I know I'm going to heaven. My mum, when she was alive, before she became a believer towards the end of her life, she used to think that was an incredibly arrogant statement. And so will most Australians. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? How can you be sure that wrong? I know I'm getting to heaven because of what he did and what he promised. My righteousness is not mine. It's a gift from him to me. And I am so certain of it. That's what Paul is saying. I want to be found in him, having a righteousness, not coming about by my own works and efforts, but the one that he gives me by faith in him. I'll expand that a little bit in a moment. If we have time I want to know him and particularly I want to know him like personally but I want to know him experientially in two dimensions one I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to participate in his sufferings I want to know him and in the power of his resurrection and what Paul means by that is I want to know Jesus working in me and just like God raised him from the dead so God will be changing me from being spiritually dead or sinful or giving in to um, temptation and sin I want to know victory I want him to be working in me we can't do it in our own effort it requires divine power to do it God is the one who has to be at work in us just like Jesus lived to do the father's will 
So I want to live to do the Father's will. Jesus died for sin. I want to die to sin. That's what he means. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Consumed. I want to become like him. I want to know him. Not just know about him. I want to know him. And I want to participate in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Which means that you are not going to be um, crucified like he was at the end of his life. But what you're going to be is he was fully obedient even to the point of death. So I want to be fully obedient even to the point of dying to myself. Fully obedient to the Heavenly Father. And then to become like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection to become like him. When it says somehow attaining to the resurrection, it sounds like he's a little bit uncertain, like somehow. He's not uncertain about the event of it. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, absolutely certainty of it. He's uncertain about the method. Is he going to be here when Jesus comes back? So then I'll be raptured and changed. Or will I have deceased, predeceased, and then Jesus returns, then I'll be raised from the grave. That's what he means. The uncertainty is in the method, not in the certainty of his own resurrection and change. And then Paul goes on to talk about those three things in verses 9, 10 and 11. I want to be in Christ. I want to know him. I want to be, excuse me, I want to become like him. Uh, for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while and you know these uh, phrases, let me give them to you. In verse 9, he talks about justification. We are in Christ. In verse 10, he's talking about sanctification, knowing Christ and becoming like him, knowingly. And verse 11 is glorification, becoming like him ultimately because of his working in our life. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Lovely words that we should value. And if you read Romans chapter 8, towards the end of it, those three words appear, that God works in us through that process, justifies us, is sanctifying us, and promises that he will glorify us I won't use that illustration we can know Jesus that's what this passage implies Paul says I want to know him you can't see him physically but he is real and you can sense that he is spiritually present that he listens to you and you can listen to him you can feel or sense his closeness his love his nearness he's the king of kings and lord of lords and you can speak to him each day and he will be real to you as you get to know him and respond to him. We can be righteous with God two ways. One works, one doesn't. We can be righteous with God, firstly, through Jesus. That way works. That Jesus takes my sin upon himself, he pays the penalty for it, and in, in response to me accepting that, he gives me forgiveness, cleansing and righteousness and eternal life. Or, I can try to be right with God through my own efforts, where I try to deal with my own sin, through my own religious rituals and behaviours. And I hope that I can be self-righteous. The Apostle Paul was saying, I once tried that way, doesn't work. Jesus works, and Jesus is in fact the only way. One works, one doesn't.
Let me start to draw this to a close. Gift righteousness is the righteousness that the Lord Jesus gives us. It's a gift. It's a present. You don't earn it. You don't do anything for it. But you receive it as a gift. And like a gift, you have to receive it. You have to unwrap it, give thanks for it, and enjoy using it. He offers it to us. I remember this verse, Ephesians 3.12, in the New Living Translation. And it's in the New Living Translation, the first edition. It's now gone to a second edition, and they changed it. I like the first edition of this one. It says, Now because of Jesus and our trust in him, we can come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Because of Jesus and our trust in him, we can come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. He's our heavenly father and we are his child, son or daughter. So God has responded to our need. He's done something absolutely amazing, incredible, Paul would say. He paid our debts and he set us free, just like we sang. We're in prison spiritually before we come to Christ and we can't get out. We can't set ourselves free. We've got a debt to pay and we can't pay it. But he came and he paid it and he opened the prison doors and then he says, give me your prison rags and here, take my robe and walk free. It's a wonderful picture of a wonderful truth. So question, are you in God's family? Are you following Jesus? Do you know him? Are you growing in him? Are you growing to become more like him? Are you showing him in your life? That's the challenge. And just to remind you, we need to take time, spend time to get to know him. I've been married for too long, I think. I know, that's um, a long time is what I should have said. Yeah, I'll pay for that, don't worry. And it's still true today that was true right at the beginning. We still have to spend time together. I know her really well. She knows me even better. But we still have to spend time together. So too with our relationship with Jesus. doesn't matter how long you've been following him. You need to spend time with him, communicate with him, listen to him, open your heart to him. Not cold religious duty. And the danger is we're all busy. In very busy lives, we can easily neglect that, that we cool off and we start to drift spiritually. I'm pretty sure we've all experienced that. Well, if you are experiencing that now, then I would counsel you, stop, make an appointment, come back before the Lord and pour your heart out to him and tell him that you love him, that you want to know him more because he wants nothing more for you than to love you and for you to know him and that you might experience the reality of his life in you. Maybe you're a person and you haven't come to that point in your life where you've actually accepted Jesus. You, you don't know him. You know a little bit about him. Well, for you, then I would counsel, get to know him. Read the Gospels. There are plenty of good books out on, written on Jesus explaining who he is. Borrow those, read those. Discuss, get some information about who he is and then you'll be able to make a heart response. You can't just follow somebody that you don't know something about. 
That would be like knocking on the door. I'm going to close with this. It would be like knocking on the door, wouldn't it, of a stranger if you're a single person and uh, a guy knocks on the door, girl answers the door and the guy says, will you marry me? That's called what? Is it really? Married at first sight. Seriously. My goodness me. If I was at home and there was a knock at the door and this bloke turned up and said, I want to marry your daughter, I'd say, absolutely. No, I'd say, come in. Let me get to know you. Then you need to get to know her. You need to know each other, don't you, before you commit? Or if you're committed, you have to be committed to getting to know a journey so too spiritually you need to know Jesus so you need to know about him in order for you to know him let's pray thanks heavenly father for Jesus it's all about him and thanks for the wonderful offer to change our rags our best efforts for his robe of righteousness that he offers to set us free and that he doesn't abandon us he offers to walk with us to empower us, to change us, to be with us in life's hard times. Lord, we're sorry if we've been neglecting you, that we've been drifting. Please forgive us and help us to reconnect, spend time with you, getting to know you and experiencing you afresh and loving you more and deeper. We know this is your heart's desire, so we pray for it in your name. Amen.